Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and today on the show, I'm very fortunate to have him here. Uh, we have Alan Schultz. Uh, he is a community organizer uh, working for Expo, which is ex-incarcerated people organizing. Um, he's also part of a lot of other things that he's going to have to help me out because it's a lot to remember. What are some other campaigns you're working on right now? Uh, I'm working on the Close MSDF campaign, which is the Milwaukee Secure Detention Facility. Um, I'm also a part of the Industrial Workers of the World Union, which I'm a part of a committee called the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, and I'm on their national steering for the Milwaukee branch. Sure. Well, well uh, thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Um, how's your day going so far? Um, it's it's been long because I had a meeting uh, about issues that were just occurring with like some police uh, escalations of violence uh, down in Kenosha when we were for a leadership training and uh, at UW Parkside. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you were explaining a little bit about that before the show. Um, it, yeah, it sounds like you've had a day so far. But, um, well, uh, so what we talk about in Mr. Nice Guy, we, um, we analyze love and fear through, you know, through the scope of passion. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're obviously a very passionate guy. I see you pretty much if there's any march going on in town, you're, all, you're pretty much always a part of it, which is really commendable. And it's just awesome to see somebody standing up for the rights of, of the disenfranchised. So um, I want to kind of... I guess start with uh, hearing a little bit about where you first started finding community organizing as an outlet for yourself, where you began finding a passion in it. Uh, a lot of mine comes from uh, turmoil, I would say, in my own life in conjunction with uh, really the Dontre Hamilton shooting really ignited me a lot more than, a, more than I was previously. Mm -hmm. um, it started making me write about things like uh, community policing. And when I started just ranting about it, somebody happened to like publish one of my rants. And then I kind of realized that I had something to offer with regards to that, because I had a lot of experience in, in being in the justice system mm -hmm. in a negative way. Uh, yeah. But uh, I started going through like a divorce at the same period basically and I used to be like a stay-at-home dad at the time while doing schooling and I had to take that route because it wasn't easy to find jobs anywhere because of having a conviction history and when we became estranged there was no way for me to see my children and it kind of came out of that love for my children as, as well as like concern for them and the environments that they're in that made me start going out into the community and trying to be a father that way because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to see them again at that time. I mean, I, I'm in their lives now. Yeah. Um, it's just, I didn't know where it was going. Mm -hmm. So I went with starting to join a lot of things at the time to learn the lay of the land. And I think a lot of us do that when we kind of organically figure it out. Like we start just plotting around and figuring it out and really weird ways sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, I guess um, 
what would you uh, describe as like um, one of your like first experiences like community organizing, like um, actually being out like in the public sphere doing it? What was one of the first things you did? Embarrassingly enough, because I consider myself an anarchist now, uh, but only and I radicalized quite quickly. I'd say it was in a matter of like three or four years. Uh, embarrassingly enough, it was like a Bernie Sanders march. It was like the <laughs> yeah. very first thing I went to. Uh, so 2015-ish? Yeah, actually. It was like a Labor Day uh, march that was going on in Milwaukee, and that was one of my first things was like the Bernie people were out there doing that. Um, I later got out of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure. I, like, I mean, like, I still vote for like harm reduction purposes, which is like, a lot of anarchists don't vote, and I don't fault them for that. But like, mm -hmm. I do it for harm reduction purposes, and and I I truly believe I can't get a foothold in doing the abolition work I do if I don't also try to turn the system and the tide against it yeah. um, in a way that actually creates some of the dismantling that's necessary. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, where did the like um, particularly being involved in like um, incarcerated um, just people in, in incarcerations and everything, because um, I know that's a big part of what you do now. Where did that begin? Where did you first start uh, um, doing that kind of work? I mean, I guess it's just like always been like connected and it resonated with me because I have a long history of being incarcerated. I have mental health issues. I had substance abuse issues in my past. Um, and I started aging out of the system, I would say about 26, which is normal for a lot of people because their brain is fully yeah. grown at about 25 and your hormones start to settle in yeah. a bit and you'll actually see it in the recidivism rates of folks. I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah. So I went from like age 12 to age 26 being system involved. So I was like always on some form of paper. Um, I had spent seven and a half years in what I call an installment plan, like in and out, in and out. Um, and a lot of that is privilege because um, because of my record and because I abided by doing a lot of things and I mm -hmm. went through the auspices of a lens of like mental health yeah. and substance abuse that created a situation where they were a little bit easier on me. Again, I did notice disparities in the treatment of peers of color because yeah. a lot of them uh, would get hit on a revocation on like the first, second or third time anything would occur out in the community. I, I had actually been in like 30 times in front of the same judge before I caught a revocation. Oh, wow. um, so that was a lot of chances that I got before I got hit. So I always like to acknowledge that at least that there is differences in that even with folks that are in poverty because I've always been in poverty. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but So that kind of made me get into the carceral system. Uh, that way, uh, I didn't first gravitate towards that. Yeah. I kind of plotted around. I even was doing like environmentalism with like uh, 350.org. Um, I've done a few things with that, but like I recognize that the carceral state has a position in that. It upholds a lot of the poverty that exists here. It upholds a lot of uh, the educational disparities, the destruction mm -hmm. of families. Um, it destroys a lot of the home ownership. Uh, and a lot of like that's why I focus on incarceration because like here if you address that it addresses so many of the other issues and it's just very personal to me and I know how destructive it is having been in it firsthand. Yeah.
totally. Um, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, what kind of um, organizing events do you tend to uh, rally for uh, in terms of like you know the prison industrial complex, incarcerated people? What are some uh, specific causes within that that uh, you you advocate for? Um, I, I well, I'm an abolitionist, so like I'm a little bit bolder than some colleagues of mine. Sure. Some people are what I call tinkerers, where they want reform, and I don't use that always as like a positive connotation. I use it kind of negatively because, for me, a reformist is somebody that thinks the system is actually working, and that you can just tweak it a little bit and make it more humane. When caging anything really is an inhumane thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the reason for why you see people that rally against things like segregation, you're confining folks. Yeah. Uh, when you see things like these border things that are related to immigration, again, that's confining folks and limiting movement. Uh, it's the same concept with prisons. And for me, I actually consider like the, the prison system, mental health institutions that are centralized, immigrant detention facilities, I consider all of those to be uh, concentration camps uh, only for the fact that they're all separating families, which is part of the definition of that. And at the same time, it also is leading uh, to usage as labor, which is another aspect right. of it. And another aspect is genocide. And you can say it's genocide either via being inside or a slow long-term genocide outside, which is happening in the communities because of the repercussions of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you feel like, um, do you feel like um, Milwaukee and its prison complex is like particularly bad compared to like other uh, complexes in like other cities? Or do you think that it's just, um, I mean, obviously it's, it's like a, it's a very national issue, but do you feel like Milwaukee sticks out? Uh, I think Milwaukee does in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of it is embedded in all the policies and the institutions here. Uh, I believe that there's a lot of classism as well as the racial aspects that are going on with it. Uh, I believe that's why you have the poverty things. I believe like actually expending so much that they do on the Milwaukee Police Department instead of actually using like half of those funds basically to put back into the community to be proactive into preventing some of these things because a lot of them are stemming also from houselessness, uh, lack of job opportunities, lack of transportation. And again, I feel we invest more in the policing and the imprisonment of folks in these communities than we actually do in the individuals living in them or in the community itself. Like, like just for people being in prison, they're spending on average $32,000 a year to imprison one of these individuals. If you're talking to youth, they're expending like 104000 per year. Imagine if you just dumped that back into the family itself yeah. or got them housing, got them those jobs, or just took the money and said, here, how much that would actually prevent them from having that. And if they're having mental health issues, you just now provided them with the stimulus to actually pay for that. But we don't look at it that way. Instead, we look at it like we have to like punish these folks and warehouse these folks. And I can tell you for a fact that they're not getting the proper treatment that they deserve. We know the numbers here is like 75% of the people going in from this county, going in that require some form of treatment are coming back out with only 15% of them getting it. So 
when you look at that and then you look at what I call the failure rate and the failure rate is the 85% of folks that end up recidivating in about three to five years. Mm -hmm. That's an 85% failure rate. Yeah. If that happened with like planes, do you actually think like people would still be using planes as a form of transportation? With these types of failure rates, why are we still using the same sort of prison model? Yeah, I guess that's where the, the abolition uh, definitely plays in because it's not something that gets fixed with those simple reforms. It's something that like, it's about the very, concept of keep of you know ripping people's families apart for nonviolent crimes and for substances and and it's key that substance abuse and mental health is very com like it's 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 they intertwine a lot mm -hmm. you know like um, I, I myself have dealt with mental health issues and like as and many people I know and substance abuse is still being treated as criminal activity um so uh i guess so so what are some of the, like uh the successes that you found uh through your organizing when it comes to like you know the, the like the prison system and things that yeah successes you have found with it well i mean like for some of the organizations i'm involved in they're more policy oriented so like expo is more policy oriented They've gotten wins like getting some ban-the-box ordinances passed so like municipalities don't uh, try to discriminate. But again, that doesn't help in this state because this state has uh, circuit court access uh, sites called CCAP. Yeah. And on that, like you can find out everybody's information regardless. Even if it's been dismissed sometimes, it's still read in on there. Um, and that still allows for discrimination and circumvention of using ban the box. So ban the box honestly doesn't go far enough in my opinion. There's small wins, but they're not huge. We've had other like people push and change and adapt and have co-authored uh, legislation regarding uh, the usage of solitary confinement. Um, personally, I, I think it shouldn't exist, but again, like I'm an abolitionist, so I go a little bit farther. Um, and again, uh, like abolitionists, I'm not saying that in like, I think it's gonna be gone tomorrow. Yeah. I, it's just my wide view that like, I, I think if you're thinking of it in only this reform model, you're not going far enough. You're not thinking of all the other examples that exist. A lot of abolition work is actually building those models outside yeah. of things. Uh, uh, a lot of good work, uh, like there's a group called Survived and Punished uh, down in Chicago with Miriam Cabo that runs that and they deal with a lot of people that have experienced sexual assaults and also finding ways to actually work through their trauma and also make sure that they're still not harming people by putting them into prison. Yeah. They're trying to build communities that, that doesn't exist in and change larger narratives. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Do you feel, um, are like, uh, are we seeing any more of um, like nonviolent criminals getting pardoned at all in the Milwaukee prison system, or are we still pretty far away from that? Uh, I think we're really far away from it. Uh, Governor Evers, in my opinion, he had the ability to grant pardons and clemency to people that were still inside. Uh, recently, he just sent through an executive order. The executive order has actually limited him to uh, five years, somebody has to have been out, has to have been off their papers, has to have been mandatorily released. So he actually tied his own powers when he created that executive order. It basically says like, 
you have to have been completely done with the system for five years before I will uh, pardon and grant clemency. But what if you actually know and you're pretty certain that somebody that's in should be exonerated, he essentially limited his ability to exonerate, or not exonerate, but at least allow them clemency to get out. Sure. Like, a lot of times these cases, they can wait. Like, they, they uh, a judge might want to bury something. And this is where something like a governor pardon and clemency would also come in handy. Mm -hmm. um, and those also are limiting your emergency powers on anybody else that, like, you could actually look back and go, like, yeah, this is minor. They shouldn't have been in this long. That would have been a, a valve that he could have released a lot of folks. They're 33% overcrowded right now. You would think they want to do that and actually change some of the things that are increasing incarceration, like supervision, yeah. uh, which has the technical rule violations of what we call uh, like crimeless revocations. A lot of people don't have new charges, but they get brought in on some minor rule violation. We've had people brought in because they missed a meeting or they missed a, a curfew by a couple minutes or they had a faulty uh, GPS unit on their ankle that went off at the wrong time. We've had people that actually stated that those went off on them uh, in the middle. It said it was they were in the middle of Lake Michigan, wow. even though they were at home in their living room. And because of that faulty thing, that automatically throws you back and gets you incarcerated. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of issues going on here, and that's like one of the major drivers here is supervision. Um, it's not really the new charges. Mm -hmm. It's We have too long a supervision. They restart you on it almost every time. So, like, if you go in for a program, say the program is supposed to be three months, they usually have a wait list, and then you end up stuck for, like, nine months, and then you come back out and they restart your probation or your extended supervision all the way over. Mm -hmm. So you're going back and having to do this over and over. We had somebody that said they initially had like a nine year paper sentence and wound up serving about 21 years total. Wow. Jesus. Holy shit. Do you know what the, the conviction was or what the, like what the charge was? Uh, I, I can't remember. If I remember right, it, it was something that was more, it, it, it was more about a robbery nature. But again, like, this individual served their time in, and you just kept extending them. Um, and a lot of those were coming off of things like, uh, like a relapse, which, I, like, I actually work in that. Like, I had AOTA training. I've done drug assessments for mm -hmm. folks while interning. Uh, like most people actually relapse like 11 times. It's a biological issue. Yeah. It's not an issue that you should be criminalizing folks over. And I, we've even had folks from the Division of Community Corrections here that, uh, that head psychology that actually said like jails and prisons are again not the best place to get people rehabilitated and yeah. treated. Uh, anybody that actually says there there's something that 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 works, they don't. Um, and that's kind of why we got rid of mental health institutions in the 70s. But a lot of those, when they started depopulating those, the jail then became the de facto yeah. realm to do mental health treatment, yeah. and they in fact don't do that. So if in the realm of like when we're talking about abolitionism. Like, I guess, like, what would a long-term, uh, like, uh, attainable goal be for, like, 
an alternative to the current prison industrial complex, I guess at least in your mind? Uh, I mean, that's just building those like sustainable communities outside of the system that protect themselves from the current system, I would say. Uh, a lot of communities, and I, and I applaud like uh, folks in our own community here, uh, there's the community task force. Community task force is multiple groups together uh, that actually kind of police their own neighborhoods and they try to instill a lot of the values that they want to see in those neighbors no matter how much they've been struggling no matter how much they're underfunded and uh, folks like older people county supervisors people don't pen them into the budget basically and these individuals still miraculously find a way to uplift their community and I think those folks if you invested in them more and let them self-direct it and the community self-direct through them uh, you can see a lot of positive change outside of the current system. I don't think there's any way to like easily dismantle it like entirely right now yeah. until you get mass buy-in. Uh, but I think that's why it's important for like those of us that are willing to be bold in our narrative to be out here and be bold and be reasonable with it. Like actually like try to understand that other folks aren't where you're at necessarily and try to work with them on that. For me, like the simplest thing to work with an abolitionist on is basically you're all in agreement on dismantling and that what you're doing is not re-entrenching the system. Mm -hmm. So like if it's going to allow for a transition in this what we call e-carceration, yeah. which is GPS monitoring, uh, we're not in favor of that as abolitionists because it's another like tripwire to sending people back and getting them re-incarcerated. Plus with the e-carceration thing, uh, it actually monitors your entire household. It allows for a premise for officers to come into your home and now they can criminalize the rest of your household, surveil it. Wow. And a lot of folks don't think about that. Yeah. It's also tracking you sometimes even in your movements when you're outside of the house. We don't even have the time know where his data is going with these yeah. companies. And a lot of them are third party companies that are profiting off of it. We have an individual that I know personally uh, served all their time is off of their community supervision but has lifetime GPS monitoring and has to pay like $240 a month for life even though they're not on community supervision whatsoever anymore that's terrible and the policy that created that came out after they were already incarcerated so like they like retroactively put it in onto their stuff even though this never would have existed when they initially got sentenced mm -hmm. um, the, the system is just really busted and it's, uh, and it's, I don't even know if it's busted. I kind of consider it like functioning in the way it's meant to function, um, especially when you see the particular disparities that exist and even the way that like uh, incarceration can fund the communities out in the rural area through uh, what we call prison gerrymandering, uh, prison gerrymandering is when you remove somebody from the community here, they're no longer used in the census in this community. Um, so if you take somebody that is a more marginalized identity group that tends to usually get more federal funding, state funding, mm -hmm. you then move them to a rural environment and you're now counting them as part of that population but they can't vote. And now that community gets all the funding for that individual being housed there. Uh, you'll actually see some of these really bad racial disparities and gerrymandered things and they actually mirror the prison entirely if you look at it I believe there's something on like 
city lab that does research on that. I had no idea about this. It's fucked. Um, <laughs> holy shit. I guess where does, uh, where does, um, the, uh, the anarchism that uh, you identify with sort of play into all this? Uh, for me, mine comes from a more decolonial space. Uh, some of my other folks come from a more anti-capitalist space, and I do too, but I, I, I feel that colonialism predates capitalism. It and does. I also feel like it intertwines with the capitalism and the classism and the white supremacy. I figure all of that really intertwines into that and if we can't address that and even talk about it from that lens that we're not going to get very far on these other things and we're still going to be separated. I feel a lot of times uh, coming from the decolonial one again that becomes kind of anti-state to a degree and I, I to a degree believe that a lot of times the community is more locally I, I don't think that we, I think we can get together broadly, but we really need to get our crap together locally first. Yeah. And I think anarchism is best suited for it. And I think it's best suited to at least uh, operate inside this system that we currently have and protect ourselves within it to a certain degree. I mean, there's always the ability of a military regime to crush you. Yeah. Especially one as mighty as the United States yeah. uh, is. Uh, and I don't know if there's any easy answer to it other than like we have to at least start talking about it, envisioning it, and then working together on these things and working on ways to subvert to a certain, t certain degree what has currently happened that we know is really wrong. And for me, that's the carceral system. So that's what I'm I'm looking at doing the most on. I think some to some degree, folks like Martin Luther King, who's not an anarchist, uh, he actually was advocating for tackling things like militarism as well. Um, I'm not against that personally, because I feel a lot of that feeds into the prison system as well. When you yeah. got Unicor, which makes a lot of the, that has a lot of the uniforms. Uh, the body armor and all that, a lot of that is being made by people that are incarcerated in the federal system. Uh, but, like, I wish people would understand, too, that, like, a lot of folks are just flat-out warehoused, and the system's still making money off of them because it's profiting off of them off of using the phone systems, the canteen systems. All those things are ran by private operators, and sometimes the healthcare systems have private providers or middle managers, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's where you end up with a lot of the negative things that get said about people that are dealing with the medical system inside of a prison. Uh, a common uh, misnomer and myth is really that people get better healthcare in there, and the fact of the matter is, is like, no, they don't. People don't have to be urgent, and these individuals that are in there are traditionally are being dehumanized. So a lot of times uh, the folks that are supposed to be treating them with kindness uh, end up uh, taking on a demeanor of the guards that exist in there. Mm -hmm. And a really good way to understand how guards are, watch the Stanford experiment. That's, that's the I've only thing it. I can say. That's watch. the psych, yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing that'll make you an anarchist too, because like you start to see how even those interpersonal things with somebody having small amounts of authority over others uh, becomes really damaging. So like as an anarchist, I'm like really against a lot of these ariarchal things, yeah. including patriarchy. And I'm man, 
I'm a cis man, cisgendered man, so, and I'm a white man. Yeah. So a lot of these things, I have uh, disproportionate power and privilege, and I have to be always aware and cognizant of that. And like, I know a lot of folks, some people are like, I don't believe in that. That's just some social justice mumbo jumbo. But you try organizing with folks when you don't actually recognize like their identity wholly and respect their dignity and their identity. Um, and also their positionality to oppression. Like that's important too. Like a lot of us that are white men don't don't recognize our positionality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have to play our part. And I feel like I'm trying to do that by having this show, by yeah. giving the platform to um, various people from different marginalized communities to speak to speak their part. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's we we given that privilege, it's it's a we're obligated to if we want to see real change to to do that. Um, I have a friend, um, so I'm from Illinois, mm -hmm. and um, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, I had a friend in high school who, um, he, well, this was after he graduated, but um, he, he was, he did enter a house, uh, he was, he was, like, he was an addict, mm -hmm. um, and he was, um, you know, he also, you know, grew up in poverty, he also, you know, was struggling a lot, he had a lot of domestic issues, and he, um, he got caught robbing a house. Um, he was, I think, just like, I think he was looking for money or something. Mm -hmm. But um, he was unarmed. Uh, he, he was, his, on his person, he was unarmed, but apparently he had a gun in his car. Um, but, like I said, it wasn't on his person, but... That comes with an enhancer. Yeah, well, and he was also black. Mm -hmm. So he ended up getting charged with armed home invasion, even though he wasn't even technically armed, and he is in prison for 15 years now. Um, which, uh, he served about, that was about three years ago, but he's still got another 12 years, I'm pretty sure. I might not ever see him again. Yeah. And, and, and I would say those enhancers like that, that come with, like, you see, like, the, gar the gun thing sometimes enhances that to making it what they deem a violent crime then, even though it was just present. And it's like, look, like it wasn't used. And you'll find a lot of these people that are getting labeled as violent versus nonviolent, because I don't even like using those like dichotomy. Yeah. Uh, because like, I'm, I'm like a lot of these folks, it's just flat out society failed them. And if society didn't fail them, they wouldn't have gotten to the degree that they got to. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying there's not anomalies out here, like you have serial killers um, and, and sociopathic individuals. That's a real thing, but that's a very, very, very minute portion of the people that exist out there. And even most of the people that are in today, like 95% of them are coming back out. Mm -hmm. So like, in fact, in this state, 85% of them are coming back out in the next five years. <laughs> people, yeah, you're talking about people that are like, like murderers. Yeah, well, well, in this state, uh, this is something that's commonly used by the DOC. They always go, 67% of the people that, that you're talking about on those crimeless revocations are violent crimes. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that because a lot of those folks got those enhancers like your friend got and got labeled that. Um, some of these folks, I've had a domestic violence thing in my past as a juvenile. That labels me as a violent uh, offender in their book. 
uh, and I don't like that term, but uh, that labels me as that. But at the same time, it was for a shouting argument between yeah. my parents at that time, mm -hmm. and I get that label. So that 67% is wholly inflated. And again, a lot of the arguments that get made at us are like, uh, these people got revocated for a reason. Oh, is that true? If they didn't have a new charge, what are you revocating these folks for? Because you clearly thought that they were safe enough to be out in the community on community supervision yeah. and that they had served out their time. But now you want to label them as violent again and use that label again against them. So that's that double jeopardy that they don't want to actually say exists. You're technically getting hit repeatedly with this scarlet letter A yeah. that you're always wearing. Right, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um, and that goes back into that CCAT thing you were talking about earlier, too, that never gets removed. Um, so I think what, uh, obviously, like, um, a huge problem Milwaukee has is its cultural, political, racial segregation, like, socioeconomic segregation, the gentrification, it's all... It's a huge issue we all talk about a lot, um, and I, th I think that it plays a big part into how a lot of everyday people, like on this side of town, like on the east side, like people like in the UWM area, a lot of us don't know about any of these things that you that you were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> like none of us. I myself, like I feel like I've learned a lot in the last half hour just about how fucked it is, um, and we just because we're so unexposed mm -hmm. to other districts in the city, other disenfranchised communities that are severely underfunded, that are instead being where we have money being allocated to serve, you know, tourist things like the hop. Um, <laughs> but like, obviously these communities are very severely neglected. Um, and I mean, I went to, I moved here for school, and I lived on the east side for four years. I just moved to the west last month. I don't like be we we have very little exposure as community young community members to a lot of these deeper societal issues that heavily plague our city, um, and it doesn't happen overnight. Like it, it, you, it's it's a lot to learn and to also emotionally like sort of take in mm -hmm. um, when you're when you're like actually being out here and seeing like what people are organizing around what people are passionately like trying to bring light to and you know a lot of us just we either don't know what to how to react or what to say or it's just we like to think that things are okay just because it is for us mm -hmm. um, so what are some really like what are some like just entry-level little things that like people like myself people like my friends people like uwm students just community members that are still like you know not as involved to the extent that someone like you are what are some little things that we can do um i mean when 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 stuff comes up like phone zaps which is like calling in to do like a wellness check on somebody that's incarcerated or somebody that's doing a hunger strike or those types of things. When you see one of those on like Facebook or something, share it. Uh, do it. Uh, it takes 30 seconds out of your day sometimes to do these and then report back. Um, other times that you're feeling more ambitious, show up to a meeting. You learn a lot at the meetings. Um, it doesn't matter which organization. And I, I, I could shout out some like Expo, IWOC, uh, Black and Pink. Uh, 
I'd shout out uh, All of Us or None. Uh, there's a lot of good organizations out here doing solid work. Like, uh, I, I would say showing up to some of their meetings, so then you learn a lot from that. Uh, sometimes you get to have input in what they're going to do. And that's not saying you have to be at everything. Um, get on a listserv, on an email listserv, and follow what some of these organizations are talking about. And if you can't show up, maybe donate something. Uh, that's Any little I, bit helps because some of us are writing a lot and we have printing costs, uh, stamp costs, and sometimes the DOC actually rejects our letters, sends them back, and then we have to figure out how we're going to send it again. Um, it, it, these things are not, not that hard. Um, and, and really just have conversations with people near you and like question anytime folks are really trying to label somebody as bad or a throwaway individual. Because uh, most of these individuals aren't. They just are going through so many struggles and they never had the chance or the opportunity to even climb up. Yeah. Um, and I get it, like life ain't fair and, and, and people aren't all born with the same things, but come on, like some of this is like no brainer with, with how we should be treating these individuals with dignity yeah. um, through and through and should be caring to uplift them and at least make sure they're fed and have a house over, a roof over their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, that's great. Um, I'll definitely be tagging those organizations that you mentioned in the, in the video. Um, last question for the sake of time. Um, you talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Um, how do your kids inspire you? Uh, my kids, uh, just by their existence, first off, inspired me. Uh, I never thought I was going to have kids. Like uh, I was always in and out of prison a lot. I couldn't really build well with intimate relationships. I still feel I have difficulty with it. Uh, but my kids, like, day one, like, the way they lit up with me, the way I lit up around them, they literally, like, think the world of me, and, like, I, I wouldn't want to harm that in any way. Um, so I'm trying to, like, live my fullest life that I never thought I could before. But at the same time, like, I'm not trying to live it so selfishly. So I'm trying to kind of build something for them and show them a different way. So I, I take them to action sometimes when I feel it's, like, not going to be confrontational with, like, officers or something. I'll take them to those and try to teach them a little bit. Uh, and I, I try to read things that are relevant. Uh, I read things like uh, Maniac McGee and... Uh, yeah. I try to dissect things like race, racial issues for them. Again, it's it's imperfect coming from me, but uh, it's better than not talking about it. My kids are young, like my daughter just turned eight, my son's nine. Uh, I'm doing it really early and it's because I don't want them to like, I want them to be conscious of the spaces that they're in mm -hmm. and how much space they're taking up because there's a lot of little other individuals that don't get the same platforms and the same privileges. And I know that's really rough to be like trying to teach your kid that at an early age, but I don't think if anybody, like if nobody takes that on, you're just gonna be oblivious and ignoring the issues as is because you're not instilling it in the next, in the next generation to come. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a heavy, heavy burden uh, to really have, but like a lot of, kids coming out uh, underneath uh, somebody that's formerly incarcerated, 
they got a lot of difficulties as is. I mean, I was a binge drinking alcoholic, so uh, my kids are going to be susceptible to that, especially living in the yeah. Milwaukee area. Um, and I'm no prohibitionist or anything, but like, I mean, like, I really need to figure out a way that they can function in the society safely. And they're always in the forethought of my mind with my organizing. I, I think they are for a lot of folks. And even some of the folks that don't have kids, I hear them talking like that about the next generation. Yeah. And a lot of us that I think are doing the boldest thing have a lot of hope for the youth of today. Even as much as you hear some of these other generations talking so down on them, uh, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, just need to like feed it. Well, that's an encouraging thought. All right. Well, uh, to close out, um, Alan. Uh, so my closing questions. I ask every guest this: um, What keeps you up at night? Uh, people in cages. Yeah. That's, Period. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, what puts you to sleep? Uh, being tired from fighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did a damn good job with it. Uh, <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, I guess uh, in closing, um, just think about the little things that you can do to help those that society has either failed, fucked over, wrongfully convicted of something think about those people and a little thing like a donation or a meeting or just being on a mailing list that can help thank you for watching mr nice guy we'll see you next time